Inventivity. What does it mean? The state of being inventive, creating or designing new things or thoughts. Hello, I'm Richard Miles. Welcome to the Inventivity Pod. Join us as we speak to inventors, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are using inventivity to change the world. They will bring us alongside their journey as they share their personal stories from start to finish, including the triumphs, the failures, and everything in between. Hi, I'm Richard Miles, and welcome to our series, Exploring the Blue Economy, an effort to conserve marine and freshwater environments while using them in a sustainable way. So our series takes a look at what that means, who's involved, and what the future is going to look like thanks to innovators in their inventivity. And my guest today is Serge Albino, the co-founder and CEO of Ecospears, a pioneering sediment, water, and soil remediation company. And it's dedicated to eliminating forever chemicals using NASA-developed technology. Uh, Serge earned his undergraduate degree in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering from the University of Central Florida, and his MBA in operations and technology management and sustainability from the Rollins College Crummer Graduate School of Business. Serge, welcome to the Inventivity Pod. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, Glad to be here and glad to talk about the environment and the blue economy program, especially here that's so vibrant in Florida. Serge, you've got a fascinating background and I could talk to you all day just about, you know, your story. But I always like to start these interviews by kind of describing for our listeners what the what is. In other words, what what is the problem you're trying to solve? What's your solution and and how does it work? And just as a short preview for the listeners, you know, even though the name of the company is Ecospears, that's sort of one of the the three main products or technologies you're developing. So why don't you talk about each one of those sort of again, what you know, what is the problem? What's your solution and, and how does it work? Yeah, I think from a high level, right? The the most important thing out there that we envision and we envision for our mission is to provide clean food clean water without sacrificing clean air, right? To the general public and mostly to the industrialized nations as well, right? And how we do that is tackling the great issues that's dealing with environmental contamination as it's so prevalent and pervasive in our drinking water, in our uh, soils that we uh, that we live in in our backyards, and uh, we utilize technologies that we have licensed from NASA Kennedy Space Center. But we've also built other technologies through, through the years that Ecospears has, uh, has grown to address these environmental contamination issues around the world. And what's unique about us is that we aim to not only remove and destroy these contaminants, but we aim to de- remove and destroy them in a sustainable manner. We no longer want to ship it from one part of the globe to another, making it somebody else's problem, nor are we looking to burn it so that it becomes everybody's problem in the form of air pollution. That's really great. I remember when I first heard of this, and I wasn't quite sure how it worked. And I think it wasn't until you sat down and sort of explained the technology to me that I realized you know, what a what a breakthrough or, or sort of a game changer this can be. Ecospears, you know, the one that you use for the soil remediation, you know, for the listeners who haven't seen this, it, it almost looks like a, like a, a medieval torture uh, device <laughs> that you might see in a torture museum, right? So it's got these sort of giant spiky things in an array. And you were explaining to me, Serge, I remember that the spikes themselves were made out of basically plastic 
right? Mm -hmm. Or a form of plastic. And then within that, there's something that basically, you know, helps leach those chemicals, the forever chemicals, whether the PCBs or other types into that. And then you can then pluck the whole array out. So as opposed to uh, the traditional or the current sort of standard of, of remediation is you just come up with a big steam shovel and you dig all that dirt out and you cart it away, like you said. Tell me the invention story of this. It was kind of fascinating, right? W weren't there like just regular marine buoys, something like that, and they determined that this was actually attracting some of these PCBs or soaking them up? Is that was the original insight? So the actual insight actually came from an amazing inventor that we both know, Dr. Jackie Quinn from NASA Kennedy Space Center, who actually has a display at the Cade Museum right. in Gainesville. And the story goes basically that NASA already invented the technology for chemically destroying PCB and other type of chlorinated contamination when it's on paint uh, or concrete, right? But when PCB or chlorinated contamination eventually find themselves into the sediment, it becomes a whole different issue, right? Because now it gets into the fish. And when it gets into a fish, it gets into our food web. So Dr. Quinn had a project with the U.S. Navy that they won, and they were looking for a way to remove PCBs from sediment once it's already in the environment. And she was reading a report about plastics in the oceans coming back with high levels of chlorinated contamination and PCB. So she had an idea. If plastics in the ocean come back with high levels of chlorine contamination, what can we do to help that? So she ran down to Sunny's Barbecue, grab a bunch of straws, uh, fill the uh, plastic straws with alcohol reagent or ethanol reagent, and tested them. And lo and behold, they worked. So during that same year, she reached out to me. I was no longer with Kennedy Space Center. And she said, I need help designing this for manufacturing so that when this has traction, the, the rest of the world can utilize this from a cost-effective manner. Um, and that's when I started working with her back in, I think it was like 2014 or 2015, to kind of work towards a, a new design that would allow for us to deploy this in a much more easier fashion into the environment, but also allow for us to not only remove contaminants, but also utilize this technology to provide data into the body of water, into the river, so that the solutions would be a much more informed approach rather than picking up a shovel or a dredging tool to dredge the entire river. So th the spears kind of act like a giant sponge or a sponge of sort, right, that kind of sucks those PCBs out of the sediment, captures them. And then what do you do with them then? You, you said you don't ship them away, you don't burn them. What happens to the, the contaminated sediment? So the, what happens to the um, the PCBs, the freely dissolved PCBs that move in and migrate into the spears, once we remove the spears, um, we then empty it out because the reagent will actually hold and capture and entrap the PCBs into that reagent. We then take our other technology, which is the EcoCube technology, and destroy the PCBs using UV, advanced oxidation, um, so that we eliminate the PCBs from the alcohol reagent and then repurpose and reuse the plastic and alcohol reagent for more spears and spears deployment. So it's a full cradle to cradle approach, something that we are very so fond of and used to uh, at NASA and working with space programs. And you can do this on site, right? This doesn't require you to transport it to a laboratory. You can basically put those 
the eco cubes, right? Um, right where it is and, and just do it there, right? That's correct. Because the cost, the reason why a lot of folks don't do this at the goodness of their own heart, because the cost of environmental remediation is so much. Part of the, the biggest attribute to that cost is the cost of transportation. So the ability for us to do this on site makes it a much more cost-effective approach and manner. And then you've got one other technology called EcoAna. Is that is that pronounced correctly? And and what does that do? Yeah. So EcoAna means uh, land uh, in the Hawaiian culture. Okay. And we commemorated that equipment based on the programs that we were using it for in Hawaii and in Guam. And that technology was originally built because as we were talking to our clients that had PCB or chlorinated contamination issues in the sediment, well, it had to come from somewhere, right? Typically, it would lead into the sediments because the sediment is a lower area. Um, the upland condition is typically where they would have stockpiles of transformers or transformer oils in the past, or they had, you know, buildings painted with PCB paint. So they asked us, hey, will your spears work for our soil, dry soil upland condition? And the, the short answer is no, because we need water in order for it to migrate into the spears. So we instead took the chemistry that we knew so well that we utilize within Spears and develop a process, a soil washing process to strip the contaminants from the soil. Once we remove it from the soil, the soil is tested, then it's put back into the ground where it belongs. And then we then treat the, the reagent and destroy it using the UV process once again. And we're actually proud that we completed our first pilot program of this technology in Guam quarter three of this year. And we're preparing now for a new pilot program to full-scale program in Hawaii quarter two of next year. So very exciting times for the Ecolina program as well. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys have had some remarkable success with, with the Navy in Guam. I know you were up in the Anacostia River, correct? In the Washington, D.C. area? Yeah, coastal Guam and then uh, with a local utility company in the Anacostia River, yes. Okay, and then I think you've done some work in Europe as well, or did you do any research? Or... Yeah, we did uh, we, we did a research pilot project with Umeå University and the Swedish Geotechnical Institute for utilizing spears for possible sediment remediation in northern Sweden. So that was a fun project, certainly very, very cold compared to Florida. And then in October 2023, you got uh, what's called an EPA comfort letter. If you can explain what, what that is. At first, I read that and I thought, well, that's a sort of an odd term, but uh, I think it's a, a big deal for a company like yours. What is it? What is a letter like that from EPA mean? Yeah, so that was actually in January 2020 when we, right before the world closed down, we received our EPA comfort letter for our EcoAina soil washing process, which basically meant that EPA recognized our solution for self-implementing programs and risk-based programs so that when we have uh, our clients, they, they would always want to ask, well, does EPA federal know about this and do they approve it? Here's the letter. Um, so once we've gotten that, we were able to kind of manage through essentially what would be a longer term sales cycle with that comfort letter because now they understand clients and uh, environmental consultant groups that represent the clients all understood that EPA is aware of what we do and our solutions and what could be a roadblock now just got flattened out because of that comfort letter. 
So it's it's like a good housekeeping seal approver, like a Michelin star, right? It just kind of gives you credibility. Pretty much. In terms of the technology, yeah. The Spears actually has gotten the world version of that from uh, International Pollution Elimination Network. This has gotten the best available practice and best environmental technology recommendation also from the UN. So the Spears is also quite celebrated uh, in the European industry also, or the European sector as well. Tell me what the cost perspective looks like. I mean, do you, uh, you know, I know you don't need to dig bulldozers to remove soil, but this is require a lot of labor to install these or how are these put in and, and what does that look like from a price perspective? Yeah, so essentially um, what we're doing right now is a very manual approach onto the Spears deployment. We're doing more pilot programs with this right now. And we're deploying this essentially on boats, right? Uh, we're deploying 100 mats at a time for a small pilot program. Uh, and that's to test out not just the efficacy, but the engineering scalability and operational scalability of it. Essentially, later on, when we move to full-scale programs that we look to do in New York soon, we will automate that process and leveraging basically a gantry system to pick and pluck the mats into the waterway so that we are not, no longer exposing our team members to the contaminated media uh, in the water. So very manual approach right now, labor intensive, but we like working with local assets also in deploying this onto sites. Our Ecoina system, which is more of a soil washing system, that is a soil washing process. What it replaces from a cost perspective is since we're going to be displacing the cost of transport and disposal, you know, because remember in Hawaii, they had to mm -hmm. go all the way back to California or Utah for uh, landfilling. So that cost is just extremely high. Being able to do it on site while a labor cost may be higher, it certainly displaces the transportation and disposal cost significantly. Right. And and uh, what about the, the EcoCube portion of it where you're sort of destroying the PCBs? Is that pretty expensive or is that fairly relatively low tech or how does that work? It's, it's pretty high tech actually, but okay. it becomes very cost effective because the way things are done right now is they use filtration media to basically mobilize the contamination from water into, let's say, a granule activated carbon like you'll find in your refrigerator, but massive building size GAC systems. And then when, the, when that carbon filter is at capacity, then you got to take it to a landfill. What we do with the EcoCube is basically as water passes through it, it hits it with UV and advanced oxidation and it destroys it. So it becomes more of a forever model, essentially a, more of a product as a service type model for us. And once contamination is in the water, sadly, it becomes essentially a forever model. Mm -hmm. um, but as long as you have the right solution that can change its dosing with the levels of contamination that's coming down the pipe, you'll have a solution that that's ideal for uh, not only a cost-effective approach, but a very sustainable approach. Serge, let's go back to the very beginning of your story. You were you were born in the Philippines. You grew up there as a boy, and you, you ended up at NASA. You know, <laughs> not exactly a typical story, but that did include some detours, I understand, in, in New York City and, and even initial interest in, in studying the fine arts. So Give us a flesh that out a little bit. Tell us, you know, sort of uh, how how long were you in the Philippines before you moved to the United States? Uh, and, and what was that transition like? I imagine it wasn't um, maybe the easiest transition to all of a sudden come from a self-described island boy to, uh, you know, the heart of American commerce and activity and so on. 
Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in the Philippines uh, in an island called Negros Occidental or Negros. And I grew up there until I was eight years old. Uh, my mom was a nurse, uh, what I consider a, 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 an entrepreneur of her time and migrated to New York, New Jersey area for a better opportunity. She petitioned my dad and I in 88, and we moved to New York City. And that was a big culture shock. And, you know, mind you, in the Philippines, English is the first language, but the culture transition was very, very different. So lived in New York until uh, about 95, and we eventually moved here to Florida, Central Florida area. And uh, again, in search for a better opportunity outside of the big city of New York, where my sister and I grew up, we wanted her to grow up in in a much better area where you have a little bit more elbow room than the big city. Um, and eventually, I found myself, you know, at NASA after going to college at UCF uh, for aerospace engineering. And uh, you know, the the passion for I guess space and astronomy has always been. A big dream of mine from the from when I was a child. Uh, my aunts used to tell me, "Stop counting the stars, you'll go crazy." So I ended up working at NASA at some point. I guess that was, that was just some of the detours. And if it wasn't for uh, working at NASA, I would have never encountered Dr. Quinn and the the Spears technology that leads us to where we are today. So you can never connect the dots looking forward. You know, God has right. blessed you with just an incredible journey that when I look back now, I'm like, okay, it, it makes sense, God, you know, so. Let's spend a little bit of time on that early education piece. Uh, you talked about your aunts were, were said that you'd like to count the stars, but was there, um, do you remember, was there a particular a teacher, a class or experience that sort of awakened that desire to, to study engineering, the environment, space, entrepreneurship? You know, so in other words, who, who formed you and, and how? Do you remember that, where that happened or how that happened? Yeah, Mr. Slivko, earth and science teacher in, in, in seventh grade. And it's actually now a principal of one of the district schools there in New York. I'll be in New York next week, so I'm actually going to reach out to him. And uh, man, he was just a fantastic teacher that helped basically kind of point me towards science. He inspired all of our, uh, all of the students to basically challenge themselves and to, to basically adopt this inquisitive nature of asking always why, right? Since then, um, it, it's always been that case for me. Uh, I, I'm not, I've never settled on the answer. I have to always figure out why and how we got there. And uh, that's what started me into it. I got into a little bit of astronomy and fine arts when I was in New York. I went to Students Art League of New York when I was uh, in middle school, and I was supposed to go to Fiorello LaGuardia for the arts but ended up moving down to Florida. And engineering was essentially, aerospace engineering was that good mix, I guess, between fine arts and space. And that's what led me to that engineering program and then eventually led me to DOD, Department of Defense projects before I got into NASA. That's a great story and, and one that we've heard before, you know, not just with current inventors, but sort of inventors from the past is that that mix of creativity but within a system of of hard constraints, hard physical constraints, right? I, I've always thought things like architecture, right, are are this blend of artistry, creativity within the need to you have to fit within a certain physical space, certain materials, and never struck me that engineering is just like that as well, because most of the engineering problems, right, have a very very definitive hard physical limitations requirements. But yet within that, you've got to do something 
creative. So that's just a, it's a great story. Let's turn a little bit to talking about the entrepreneurship piece. You know, there, there are lots of engineers in the world, but not all of them. In fact, most of them don't become entrepreneurs. If you, you know, grossly exaggerate on engineering does have sort of those, those predictable calculations or formulas or, or whatever, and entrepreneurship has none of them. So why did you, or what made you decide to want to get into starting your own business? What were the first attempts? Were they successful? And then, you know, how, how does it compare to sort of the, the relative calm of sort of sitting at a desk and working at an equation versus running a company? Great question. And probably the start of it all is just the, the common storyline of the, an immigrant and the American dream. Right. And also marry that with the inquisitive nature and passion for things that happens around the world. Right. So I did not pursue entrepreneurship until like around 2010, where a mentor of mine at Kennedy, NASA Kennedy Space Center, Dr. Trevor Murdoch, was always educating me on how he basically founded his consulting company. And that got me into this bug of, hey, I could do consultancy on the side too, because I have this unique engineering skill set, which is simulation within the CAD world. And working in the NASA sector and payload development for space projects, you're put into a different subject matter expertise that it could be leveraged for others out there that's looking to break into that industry. So I started uh, Caveat Engineering, which is basically uh, an engineering consulting company. And I did that for quite a while until Ecospheres was funded and uh, I focused my efforts on Ecospheres. But I learned right away that services related type of business that to start up, it's very time intensive. And your clients wants you, even it doesn't matter how good your team is, they want the guy. Right. And it can be scalable, but if you want to deliver true quality and true value, you have to be mindful of what you could kind of disseminate, uh, the work that you could kind of disseminate to others. So that led me to a company called IROC Tactical, which we look for a more of a product based business where it wouldn't be more of a service oriented venture. And we basically manufactured muzzle devices for rifle platforms that would reduce the blast overpressure from the short barrel rifles to reduce the risk of tinnitus and hearing loss within our men and women in the armed forces as well as law enforcement. I had that business for a while. Lesson learned on that business is understand the market and understand whether it is a it needs to be a venture back business right away or it's something that bootstrap. That industry has to be venture back and I did the opposite. So big lessons learned there. And when we got into Ecospheres, understood right away that the market really garnered more of a venture back type of business or venture um, in order to, for it to be successful. So we, we did it differently for this one. We raised capital right from the beginning and that's essentially how we come to be now uh, and where I am now from an entrepreneurship perspective. That's a roadmap. I'm certain, Serge, you are probably uh, at the stage now where you're routinely asked for advice from, from other people who would like to start a company thinking about developing technology. Do you have a sort of a, a go-to list, a checklist of things you say, well, here's here's what you absolutely need to do, and here's what you absolutely shouldn't do, or or just does it vary by person and by technology? Yeah, so like you know, Greg McKee, one of the my one of my mentees right now, he started a company called Nextera Medical, 
very proud of Greg. He actually just got funded by um, an accelerator, the Wildcatters Accelerator in Houston. So he's now in that mode of raising capital. I'm I'm continually always being approached uh, and asking for advice, and I, I I always leave myself open to mentoring uh, the next sets of entrepreneurs that are up and coming, because essentially, eighty percent of the venture is or it's just basic right? It's just what you'll find across multiple different types of ventures or industries. The 20% is what's unique to that industry. So if you can kind of help them navigate it a certain way, help them identify landmines, don't take away the landmines from them, but help them identify it. And then you got to leave it to them, whether they want to go to the left, to the right, or directly on it. Because as a mentor also, you have to be mindful that you are not in their business you need to be more of a mentor for the person that's in that CEO seat, not the CEO. So that's the way I typically approach it. And I do it the way I approach it is the way Dr. Pete McLinden has mentored me. Um, and basically, hey, here's our, my five go-to books. I want them all read. And I want you to come to me with solutions rather than questions so that we can kind of craft your craft into this business or this venture that you're building. So you got to focus on the person, not the business. Everything else will follow. So you're still studying. You're still doing homework after all these years, right? <laughs> you're still still learning. That's great advice. And, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs uh, on this podcast, through the Cade Prize, through the Cade Museum. And, you know, I hope they all succeed, but there's something about you. I got a feeling about you, Serge. You're going to go at the distance here. So uh, we're looking forward to you, um, you know, ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange or <laughs> one day. But it sounds like you've got a great technology. It's It's got a future and you're doing the right things to develop it. So really wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. I mean, the, the main thing for us is and what I always tell aspiring entrepreneurs is focus on the mission, right? You have to do something greater than oneself. You know, for me as a Christian, it's pretty straightforward, right? I manage the company that God has been able to provide me and I'm honored to to lead. So that takes a lot of the, the heavy burden off of me, right? Because I'm just the manager of God's company. And the main thing is to focus on that market that essentially continues to grow with your venture right environmental market sadly it keeps growing and growing you know but that also means opportunity opportunity for for us as a business to grow opportunity for our in, uh, investors to basically capitalize and to what we do in delivering an incredible mission to solve real world issues i like how you put that in you know really i think you're in the hope business because as you said you, you've got all these problems in the environment that look at first glance, sort of doom and gloom, there's no way we're going to get out of this. But it seems like there are always people like you, technologies like Ecospears that manage to to at least extend the runway or, or get us out of trouble. You, you can sort of see that with the history of clean water in the United States, even in the last 40, 50 years, it dramatically improved for, for a number of different technologies and rivers and lakes that used to be you know, untouchable or now you know, you can enjoy them. So we're, we're a little biased for this blue planet. Others are focusing on the ejection seat to go to the red one. Yeah. Uh, our focus is this blue one. So good. <laughs> Serge, thank you very much for being on Inventivity Pod and, and look forward to having you back to give us an update one day. Thank you so much, Richard. The Inventivity Pod is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention located in Gainesville, Florida. 
Richard Miles and me, James DiVirgilio, are your podcast hosts. Podcasts are recorded at the Heartwood Soundstage in Gainesville and edited and mixed by Rob Rothschild. Be sure to subscribe to the Inventivity Pod wherever you get your podcast and leave a comment or review to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, be inventive.